As we mentioned, you know, we're looking at this first miracle that is done by Jesus. And, um, and I want to tell you that this is a, it is a very, very interesting passage. Uh, the more that I looked at it, I started to read it, and the more I started to realize there's some really unusual things here, some almost, almost to the point of strange. And then as you look at it more deeply, you realize that there's more things to make it unusual. There's more things that really stand out that it's just kind of, this is a really unusual passage. But, but then as, you, as I prayed about it and reflected on it in the week, over time, God helped me not only to understand the things that are there, but, but also to see the incredible beauty that's here. It's, an, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage. Um, for starters, you know, John tells us in verse 11 that this was the first miracle that was done by Jesus. Not only that, but again, if you look at verse 11, it says, it was the first of his signs Jesus did in Canaan and Galilee, and it, it manifested his glory. So it's not only that it was his first miracle, but it's also clear that Jesus chose to do this as his first miracle, specifically because it was a miracle that he intended, as it says, manifest his glory. So in other words, it's something that he chose to do because he believed it would make a very clear statement about who he was and what he came to do. Now, this is one of the things that I have to admit that I've never really seen this before. I mean, if, if you were to ask me about this a couple weeks ago, and you'd say, okay, what was this, and how did Jesus to do it? My perception had really always been, um, you know, Jesus was at this wedding, they ran out of wine, his mom came to him with this practical problem, and Jesus at first responds, you know, why are you coming to me? My time hasn't come yet. And, and then he looks at it, and it's kind of like, well, I guess this is as good as time as any to start and show people I'm not a rabbi. And so he responds to the need by meeting this practical need and, and doing that first miracle. And so that was always kind of the perception that I had. Um, but what John is teaching us is that's a totally wrong view. It, it's not something that, you know, Jesus responded to this request it's saying that instead, no, there was an intentionality that Jesus chose to do this as his first miracle because it revealed something about him. It was des designed to, to make manifest, to reveal his glory, to reveal who he was and what he had come to do. And I want to tell you, though, as we think about it, if, if you were to expect and say, okay, what miracle would you expect Jesus to do as that first miracle that would reveal his glory, that would make manifest who he was and what he came to do? This wouldn't be the thing that most of us would, would guess. I mean, we might think, well, he would heal a blind man because that would illustrate the whole idea of, of his healing and giving sight. He would heal a, a leper, one that was you know, scarred, one that was rejected by the culture that was seen as unclean, and he would heal him. Or we might think that, you know, that he would do, take a little lunch and multiply it so that he would feed thousands of people, or even that he would raise somebody from the dead. All the things that he did. But he didn't choose any of those as his first miracle. He didn't choose any of those as a way of introducing himself in his ministry. Instead, what he chose to do is he changed water into wine, and in the process, he created 150 gallons of extremely good wine. So we have to ask, why in the world would he choose to do this as his first miracle? How does it uniquely reveal his glory? Now, to understand this, one of the things we need to do is almost back up and to try to understand something of the context of this wedding. And again, it's, it's there, but the more we understand the context, the more it, it kind of draws out some of the meaning. Uh, let's pick it up again in verse 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan and Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding and his disciples. So there's this wedding, and, and we're told that Jesus' mother is there, the disciples, and notice when it, they run out of wine in verse 3, when they run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
The one point that I want to point out here is that um, Mary knows that they've run out of wine before anyone else. At this point, the groom doesn't know, the master of the feast doesn't know, nobody knows. And not only does Mary know before anyone else, but she's taking it upon herself to try to fix the problem, which suggests that she's just not an ordinary guest, that she's actually probably one of the planners, that most people believe that this was likely a wedding for a close family member, and so, so Mary is involved in actually planning and running the wedding. And so she's involved with this. She sees this, this crisis, and she tries to, to resolve it. Now, they run out of wine at this feast, and this may not seem like a huge problem to our ears. Um, but again, what we tend to do is we understand wedding celebrations in our cultural context, and we've got to take a step back and understand it in that cultural context. In that context, this was a huge problem. You know, I, I think there have, uh, you know, I've thought about this, and I thought, you know, there have been many times that we'll get together with pastors, and a group of pastors will get together, and one of the things that we'll sometimes talk about is, you know, it's kind of like, what's your worst wedding story? You know, because we all have them. We all have, you know, what was, what was the biggest crisis? What was the thing that, you know, that you remember the most? And, and you've got some pretty, anything from funny to horrific stories. And uh, mine really aren't that bad. My worst stories, I mean, they sound bad, but it's not near as bad as any other. I had one wedding where we had the bride was an hour and a half late for her own wedding. And, uh, and you've got everybody there, and we've got calling her, and we're saying, well, we hope she's coming, we're not sure, and, and everybody's sitting there, and I've got to go up every 15 minutes and you know, like do a dance or something, and I tell, no, she's coming, and, and, you know, but it was just like this really strange, uncomfortable event. And, um, and actually, the, my, most, my most horrific story isn't from the wedding, it's from the rehearsal, but I, that's in it for another day. And, um, <laughs> but I've heard some crazy stories but the craziest story that I've ever come across wasn't from a friend of mine that shared it with me. It was actually someone who shared uh, a story that was recorded on video. And, uh, and rather than let me explain what happened, since it's on video, let me go ahead and, and show it to you. Chloe, will you have Keith to be your wedded husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health? and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. The rings, please. That's as bad as it gets. I, I can't imagine one that was worse than that. <laughs> now the fact is, as bad as that was, what was happening here in this wedding, in a lot of ways, was actually a whole lot worse. Um, because it actually wasn't just a, a, an event that would ruin the day, it actually was an event that had a chance to ruin the reputation of this young couple from the very beginning of the forming of a family. See, as big as weddings are in our culture, and you hear people all the time, they talk about you know, how much the average cost of a wedding, and I mean, it's just an enormous expense that people give. And as big as they are in our culture, it was actually bigger back then. And uh, it was a, a bigger event. The tradition was that they'd have the wedding, and at the end of the ceremony, they would, they would take the couple back to the home where they would start by living in, and then for the next week, 
that family would be expected to throw a feast. And so they would have a week-long feast at their home where people would come and they would just have this incredible wedding feast. And, and, uh, and so this was this huge deal, a huge party. And central to that feast was the wine. And actually, that was probably, you know, the, you know, you could change everything else, but that was one thing you couldn't change. In fact, there was a saying from the rabbis that says, where there is no wine, there's no joy. The idea that if you have a feast and there's no you know, wine, then you know, there's no celebration. And so it was expected that the groom and his family would make the wedding feast this great feast for all that would come. And it meant supplying the food and the wine that would be sufficient to last the end, to the end of that feast. Now, one other thing that was really significant in that culture that's different from ours is it was also a, a, what they call a shame culture. And so the idea that if you did something that was wrong, there would be an incredible mark of shame and ostracization of people. That's, you know, that when we're going to come in a couple weeks to John chapter 4 and this woman at the well, and she's walking out in the middle of the day to get water when no one else would, it's because she had shame. And that shame, she was marked by shame. She was avoided by everyone else. And so in that shame culture, if someone, if someone failed in some significant way, they would be marked with shame literally for the rest of their life. You see, in our day, if you run out of some food in the wedding, that's okay. You know, there's some other things to do. You get water, you could do. Uh, if you get knocked into the pool, you know, the fact is, you know, that's a, that might ruin your day. But the fact is, in a couple of weeks, you'll be laughing about it. You'll be sharing it on video. I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, that's an event that doesn't mark the rest of your life. But in this case, in that culture, what would happen is that if they ran out of wine, it would be something that would mark this young couple for the rest of their lives. You know, they would kind of be ostracized. They would be remembered as this couple that, that failed in the very first thing that they were supposed to do in their wedding. You know, that they didn't provide the feast for the people that came. And so for multiple reasons, this whole thing of running out of wine was a huge deal, far bigger than what it would seem to us in our culture. And so knowing that, you know, we don't know why they ran out of wine. Somebody clearly made a mistake. Somebody had some kind of miscalculation. And, and knowing that, Mary's now part of the family. She's part of probably the planning. She knows it before anyone else. And it's natural for her to now go to Jesus and to try to do whatever she can to fix it. And, uh, you know, so she's basically going, have you heard, you know, they're running out of wine. What are we going to do? Now, people, again, they speculate on this and they did, we're not sure, you know, did she expect a miracle? Probably not, because Jesus hadn't done any miracles up to this point in time. It's probably not something to say, you know, can you do some miracle here? And No, it, it's, she's sharing this need. It's a practical need and say, we've got to do something. Do you have any ideas? And so she's really asking for help, but it's an ordinary question. And what's amazing, though, is that she asks in this very practical need, a very you know, ordinary question, and Jesus responds to her with a very unexpected response. Again, look at what, what happens. Verse 3, she says, we've run out of wine, and look at the response, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is still, has not yet come. Now, this is one that you look at it, and the closer you look at it, the more unexpected it gets. You know, from first, for the very first words, it's harsh. You know, he starts off and says, you know, woman. You know, let me put it this, this way. To this day, at any time in my life, if my mom asked me something and I turned around and said, woman, what does it have to do with me? I mean, my dad's putting me on my back. I mean, that's just like, you know, you know, even, you know, even in his mid-80s, he's coming after me. I mean, it's like, that is not, that's not going to fly in my family. And my kids aren't going to talk that way to their mom. You know, the fact is, as we look at that and you say, well, that's not right. 
You know, why does he respond this way? And, and people have tried to say, well, that's good. no, no, this isn't the way that you would speak to your mom. It might be a way that you would respond to a stranger. It, it's not rude, but boy, is it abrupt. It's unexpected. And, and beyond that, it gets even more strange. You know, because when you look at that, you say, not, look at the last part. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, what we have to realize is a lot of times, again, we read, read that as, you know, I haven't started my ministry yet, but that's not what he's saying. Every time in the book of John that Jesus talks about his hour, his hour has come or his hour has not come, it always refers to his death. It always refers to the time that he would die on the cross. And so here's what happens. You know, she comes up to him and she says, you know, Jesus, you know what? They're running out of wine. And this is terrible. Can you do anything to help? And he turns and he says, woman, I'm not ready to die yet. And you're like, what? And, and, you know, and he goes, you know, this has nothing to do with me. Woman, what are you, why are you bothering me? This has nothing to do with that. I'm, it's not my time to die. And, you know, you look at it, and it's a strange response. And Mary must have been used to his strange responses. And the, the servants are there, and he says, you know, don't pay any, you know. He's, he, he responds strange sometimes, just do whatever he says. You know, just kind of, you know, just go with him. And so you see this incredibly strange answer. And what I want you to see is that all of this is going to be explained in the whole rest of the passage. Everything in there, it's beautifully explained. There's a reason that Jesus did everything that he did. This answer is actually setting up for, for the whole explanation of what he did and what it means. And first, the first thing I want to draw out, I want to draw out three, three big points here. The first one is that, is that what Jesus is teaching through this miracle is something about um, you know, the, way, the way, way we approach him in prayer the confidence we're supposed to have in God's power and his goodness. See, um, one of the things that a lot of people even, when we read this, it's, it's kind of this natural response that you think, okay, this is his first miracle. And you have Jesus that did all these incredible miracles, you know, raising people from the dead. And, and this in some ways almost seems beneath him. You know, you look at it and you say, practically, what is it? It's, it's a catering disaster. You know, you have this young couple that, that, you know, that has this catering disaster, and yes, there's going to be some shame, and, but it seems strange that Jesus would use his divine power and precious time to help some couple teenagers getting married solve this whole social failure. And we've got to ask, why did he choose this to begin? What does this miracle teach us? You see, I talk to people all the time, and they tell me something, you know, like, you know, well, I've got this need, I've got this problem, and we prayed about it, and, and they'll say something, well, I don't want to bother God with something this small. You know, you know the, the weight of the response is, you know, I have a, this really high view of God, and God is running the universe, and he's, you know, he's involved with, you know, the elections and with international issues, and, and, and because I have such a high view of God, I don't want to bother him with the little things, the little concerns that I have the little crises, the shame, the, the things that I've lost, the little things that I'm worried about. Now, if you've ever thought that, what I need to point out is that this is not at all a high view of God. It's an incredibly low view of God. You see, because what it's saying, when we say or think this, what we're doing is we're saying, I start with the assumption that God has limitations, that God is limited. And, and, you know, and, and, he's, and he's got all these people praying and he's got all these big things. And so what I need to do is because he's limited, I need to protect him from getting overwhelmed. So I'm not going to tell him about the little things because, because he needs my protection. You know, he can only do so many things. And so let's save the big things for him. And, and not only that, it assumes that his love for us is limited. That he doesn't really care about the little things in our life. 
And what I want you to see is that one of the things that this teaches is the incredible nature of God. It reveals his glory because one of the things that it's showing us is it's showing us his unlimited power. It's showing us his unlimited love, that he can handle the big things, that he can handle the small things. That when we look at it and say, why would he just bother with this little issue? You know, why? That seems to be, no, nothing's beneath him. Not only is nothing beneath him, but nothing is beyond his concern. That he's concerned about every detail in our life. You see, the fact is, is that when you really love somebody, you care about not only the big things, but the little things as well. I remember there was a, a moment that God taught me this. You know, there are times that, you know, that God teaches you something and with such clarity that it's like, man, this, this was a lesson that God whacked me over the head in a way that was, you know, I, I will never forget it. Uh, our, our oldest child was at that point maybe two or three years old, you know, Tiffany, and she had this little... Um, beanie baby, a little stuffed toy, a little, you know, like this big, that she loved. It was her favorite thing. It was Pluto, you know, Pluto the dog, you know, the dog from Disney. And she carried that with her everywhere. And one day it was time for bed and she's going to bed and we couldn't find her Pluto anywhere. And she's crying and she's, you know, you know, help me find Pluto. And she's, and, and I, so I'm, she's upstairs crying and she can't get to sleep. And I'm downstairs tearing everything apart, trying to find Pluto. And, and then I thought, well, maybe I should pray to find Pluto. And I thought, that's stupid. You know, you know, what does God care about a little beanie baby? I mean, why would I pray about that? That's such a stupid thing. And it was at that moment that God just whacked me. Because he said, why are you concerned about Pluto? I'm concerned about Pluto because it's important to my child. Do I really care about this little beanie baby? Does it have value to me? No, but it hasn't valued to me now because it has incredible value to her. And because I love her and because I care about her, the things that are important to her are important to me. So I'm stressed out and I'm spending my evening looking for Pluto. And God says, so do you think I love you that much less? Do you think you love your kids so much that you're concerned about little beanie babies and things like that? And meanwhile, you assume that I love you so much less that you can't bring things to me because I don't care. You don't want me to bother you with, you know, you don't want to bother me with those things. So I was like, okay, so God, help me find Pluto. And I tell you, 10 seconds, I looked at, she's got a little tricycle she's been riding around in the living room, and there's a little seat that folds up, her little trunk, and I look up, and there's Pluto. I'm going to pray, and I find it 10 seconds later. And it was just God's way of saying, I care about these things. And the fact is, is that this reveals God's glory because one of the things it reveals about Jesus Christ is that he cares about the details in our life. He loves you that much. And he's unlimited in his power. Now, it doesn't mean that he's always going to give you everything that you ask for, but he wants you to ask for everything that's on your heart. Now, he's not going to always give it to you because he also loves us with wisdom as a father that at times it says, well, you're asking for this, but I know better than you do that that's not what you need. That's not what's best for you. And so we're called to ask with also a humility of saying, God, here's what my need is, and, and I'm willing to let you change my heart. I'm willing to let you give me what I need. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is that he's concerned about everything. And there isn't anything that we're stressed out in life if you think, well, I shouldn't pray about this. If you're stressed out about it, the fact is, think about your children. Think about your grandchildren. If they're stressed, you're stressed. If they care about it, you care about it because you care about them. God loves you more than you love them. And therefore, he wants us to approach him with the confidence of a father, with the confidence knowing that he's almighty God, that we're not stressing him out. He doesn't need our protection from, you know, giving, not giving him too much stuff. There's, he will never be stressed out. 
And there's one other point that I want to draw out to this, and that goes back to this whole thing of why did he respond with that, you know, that harsh you know, woman? And again, there's something really important here. See, some people have interpreted these verses to say, suggest that when he responded to Mary's request, at first he says, what does this have to do with me? And he was basically saying, you know, this isn't important to me. What does this have to do with me? But because she asked and she was his mom, it's like, but mom, since you asked, okay, I'll do it for you. Now, this is a passage that actually the Roman Catholics use to teach that we should pray to Mary. Because they teach that there's a sense that Jesus listens to Mary. And so, you know, if you want to get Jesus' attention, you talk Mary into it, and he's going to go talk, she's going to talk Jesus into it. And, and you know, in another view of this, I've heard people say this same idea. It's not only with Mary, they're saying that, you know, there's certain people, well, if you prayed, well, God listens to you because you have a special relationship with God. And, well, but I don't have that special relationship. You know, that, you know I, I, I'm not confident that God will listen to me because you've got to have this special relationship. But again, now look at this response. Why does he respond? You know, woman, what does this have to do with me? The thing I want you to notice is that he says this and right away he turns around and he does it. Why would he respond this way if he's going to go ahead and turn the water into wine? And here's why. What he's doing is he's making it clear, I'm about to do this, but not because you're my mom. See, this response was inappropriate to his mother, but it was very appropriate to any, if another woman came and responded that way. And he was clear that he was responding, okay, I'm not doing this because you're my mom. I'm not doing this because you have special in with me. I'm not doing this because you have, if you have a special relationship, you can talk me into doing more things. It's almost as if Jesus could look in the future and say, I know that one day there might be some people who claim to be Christians who think that you need to go through my mother to get me to do things. And, and no, you don't need to do that. No, that's not what this is teaching at all. And not only is it not teaching that, it's not teaching that, that you know, there's some people that have special in with Jesus. And, and you know, and if, and if you don't have that relationship, well, you just can't ask him with the same confidence because you don't, you know, you're not in with him. You're not close with him. No, the whole idea of what he's teaching here is that, you know, Jesus answers this request because that's his nature. And you might be here and you have been away from God and you feel like, I have no right to come to God. I have no right to ask him for anything. Boy, I'm broken with this. And, you know, but, but, you know, but boy, it's my, my own, you know, these mistakes. And, but, but I'm guilty. I've, I've added to these things. I want you to realize that the whole idea of a relationship with God is that none of us are deserving. We come to God not because we deserve it, because we earn it. We do be by his grace. And Jesus is clear here. No, he invites all of us to come, not because we have a special relationship, but because of who he is. Now, while this passage is teaching that Jesus is unlimited in his love and his power, and he's concerned about every, our every need, even that small stuff, it also teaches us that he's concerned with more than the needs that we come to him with. Because he's concerned not only about the things that we think are important, it's he's concerned, more concerned about the things that he knows are important. The deepest needs, the greater needs that he came now, again, remember his response in verse 3. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. You know, again, we saw this. It's a strange response. You know, Jesus, we ran out of wine. You know, woman, what's this have to do with me? It's not time for me to die. And you're like, why in the world did we respond that way? And what we have to realize is that as Jesus is doing this first miracle, he is thinking about his ultimate reason that he came. That he's thinking about his death. 
and he responds this way because he wants to draw our attention to his death. He wants us to think that way so that when we look at this, we see that it's not just about water and wine, but he's actually pointing to something far greater, the greater need that he came to ultimately fulfill. Now let's go back again to verse four. He said, you know, his mother said to his servants, do whatever he says. Verse six and seven, um, or or that was five, six and seven. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now the important thing that I want you to notice is that it doesn't just say that he chose six jars. Look again. There were six jars for the, there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, there's significance in the jars. It's pointed out. See, usually when somebody would tell a story, what they do is that they wouldn't put in this detail. They would just say there were six jars, and they took six jars. And the fact that he puts in this story, and that's, I tell you, that's again the way that I read it, generally. You know, I read it, it was just six jars. He just chose six big jars that were there. And I never noticed that he draws out here that these were not just jars, they were specifically jars that were set aside for the purpose of ceremonial washing. They were, they were filled, usually that the purpose of them, they were filled with water so that, so that somebody would come, a Jewish person would come and ceremonial wash themselves. It was a way of acknowledging that they were unclean, they were unclean to come into God's presence and they needed to wash themselves before they could come into God's presence. And John puts in this extra detail because he wants us to be sure, okay, Jesus chose these intentionally. And and we've got to realize that, again, the Bible is very precise in what it's saying. It's there because it wants us to see this. So when we say, okay, this ceremonial washing, what does that mean? Now, here's what I want you to realize. It washed because it was a symbol, again, of a fact that they were sinful and that God invited them to come into the presence, but they needed to be cleansed before they could do so. Now, here's what I want you to realize. If you have any question about the significance of this, realize that these were not, these were not drinking or vessels. These were, these, were, uh, these were bathing vessels. They were vessels that wouldn't generally be used for drinking. You wouldn't store drinks in them. They were set apart for a specific purpose for washing, for bathing. And the idea that you would put a drink in this was something that was, you know, that was unthinkable. That's just what, not what you did. Let me even show you the difference. You know, when we often think of this, I would have, in my mind, thought of just you know, your basic drinking vessel. And you have big ones that store, generally have a smaller mouth, so you keep things from the outside getting in. That's what I would have thought. What they were was something more like this. You know, they're very large stone vessels that, you know, that are waist higher or higher with a very open mouth because the idea would be that you would, you know, you would wash in them. That's what, that's what he chose to use. Now, this makes sense when you remember his response was what? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. Remember, he's talking about his death and now when he takes these ceremonial vessels, what he's doing is that he's bringing things, things together. Here were these jugs that were used for ceremonial cleansing, and he had them filled with water and then transformed that water into wine. And it becomes clear that what he's talking about is that wine now is an image of, of his blood. That when we think of communion and we celebrate communion, there's wine, and this wine is an image of my blood which is shed for you. 
It's a miracle here that was meant to prefigure the meaning of Jesus' ministry in a way that was incredibly deep. He came to fill our need to be cleansed by God. It's not something that we can do by any outward ceremony. The whole idea is you had to continue to wash and you had to continue to do this because it didn't clean you all the way. It just showed your need to be cleansed. And there's no, no ceremony that you could do to cleanse yourself, to make yourself clean before God. And he's saying, no, I've come to fulfill that. I've come to, to do this not by washing or not by being baptized or not by going forward or not by saying certain words, but through my blood, I've come to offer you to be cleansed for once and for all through the wine that, that of his blood that is sacrificed for our sins. And the idea of being cleansed by, by blood, that's, that just doesn't make sense. But again, that's what the Bible teaches. Look at what it says in Revelation. These are the ones that are coming out of the great tribulation. They have, been washed, have washed their robes and made themselves white in the blood of the Lamb. The idea is that that is, that is what purifies us. We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the, you know, the servants didn't choose these jars. It wasn't Jesus said, well, go find you know, six jars. No, Jesus looks at them and says, okay, go fill those those jars that are used for purification, for washing. They would have never chosen those because again, these weren't for drinking. These were for, these were for bathing, for washing. And, but Mary told them to do what he said, so they did what he said. And he's teaching a point. He's teaching us that Jesus came to end our need for ritualistic cleansing, that he came to ultimately give us the ultimate cleansing. He chose to put the wine in a vessel that was designed to make people pure. And it wasn't an accident on Jesus' part. This was his way of manifesting his glory, of giving us a sign. Of act, he acted out a miracle that, that taught us a certain idea. What his death would mean, what he came to do. That he was the final purifier of sins. The need for ritual cleansing. For the, you know, we come and we say, well, what do I need to do? Religion is, here's what you have to do to get right with God. Here's the, you know, the forms you have to, here's the hoops you have to jump through. And he's saying, no, no you don't do any of those things anymore. All those are going to be fulfilled in what I've come to do, that I am going to be broken and spill my blood. And the blood is, if you take my blood, if, if you trust in what I've done for you, that will make you clean. That will make you clean before God once and for all like nothing else ever could. There's one other important point that I want to draw out here, which, again, this is like such an incredible point that it's, it's, it's almost so good that it sounds like it can't be true. And that is that he's talking about that we're made right with God in a relationship through Jesus Christ and his blood. But it also is teaching us that when we find that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that is the only and ultimate source of joy in our life. That Jesus Christ came to offer joy and for full fulfillment and fullness. Now again, let me go back to verses, uh, you know, starting in verse 6. Now there were six stones, jars of, uh, stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some of it and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants had drawn the water new. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine, the best wine, until now. Now again, if you have any question what it's saying, let's go back to what he said in the beginning, in, in, or the, the end. We saw this at the beginning. It, it, uh, it's verse 11. Now this is the first of his signs. Jesus said, and gained Canaan and Galilee, and it manifested his glory. And the disciples believed him. This manifested this glory. This tells us something about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And what did he do? 
He took these six jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, 150 gallons. And he made some of the best wine that people had ever tasted. And he said, okay, I want to manifest my glory. I want to teach you about who I am and what I came to do by, by making 150 gallons of all extraordinary wine. And what it's teaching us this is that the nature of Jesus' ministry is symbolized by his creating exceptionally good wine for a party. Now that sounds, you know, it's like it almost doesn't fit. But it's teaching us something that is so vital to understand. You know, a lot of times people get this idea of, you know, Christianity, it's, well, you, you know, sacrifice, it's give it, you know, it, it's kind of drudgery and, you know, even, well, I know the wedding feast in Christ, I'll go to heaven and I'll have his wedding feast, but we kind of, you know, have kind of the leftovers in the here and now. And no, the Bible teaches that, that, the, that we are called to pursue Christ because he is the source of joy. Do we live a life of denial? Is there denial in the Christian life? Yes. But the denial is recognizing there's things that will call from my heart that will not satisfy. So I deny those things because I want to be able to focus fully on Christ. Because I believe that if I focus on Christ, he will satisfy. That he will be the wine that will bring me joy, that will bring me satisfaction, that will bring me contentment. That he's saying that that I've come to, in a sense, be the joy of the party. That he is the source of ultimate joy. And again, I want to tell you that you see this throughout the Bible. You see it especially through the Gospel of John. You know, throughout John, Jesus repeatedly talks about this idea. You know, that he has come to give us life and to give us joy and to give us fulfillment. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. I come because if you have a relationship with me, you will discover abundant life. John 15, verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that, you, that, you may, uh, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That he wants us to have joy, that he wants us to have contentment. Now, does that mean that everything in life goes well? No. But the fact is that God offers us joy that is something that transcends circumstances, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of loss. See, what it's teaching us here is a principle. It's not that he's promising to give us the wine that we feel we we think we deserve and and feel we need to be happy. It's teaching that he is the wine that we need. It's not a health, wealth gospel that if you follow Jesus, he's going to give you things and stuff that's going to make you happy. He's saying that, no, the problem is, is that we're trusting in stuff and things that won't make us happy. That it's Jesus Christ and a relationship with him that gives us joy regardless of how everything else in life is going. It's a feast. And it's not just a feast then. It's not just that one day we go to heaven and we have the wedding feast with our, our Lord. Look what he says in Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. We feast with him, literally, and he with me. I want a relationship with you. And you know what that relationship is defined by? It's a feast. I want a relationship with you. And if you discover that relationship, you're going to discover a feast. You're going to discover a joy that passes human understanding, a peace that passes human understanding. Do you have that relationship with Jesus Christ? It's not that he is a means to other things, that he is the thing. He is the ultimate end. And in him, and when we make him the center of our life, in him and him alone will we find the joy and fulfillment that we long for. Not only that, it says that he's the provider that never fails. In this passage, it's teaching us again, the groom, we know culturally, the groom was responsible for the wine at the wedding. It was his failure, it was his shortcoming. 
And we see that even, you know, the master of the feast calls the bridegroom and he says, you know, everyone serves the good wine first and, and you know, but you have kept the good. And so it was the groom's responsibility. And the point is part in part this, the bridegroom blew it. He let the, let the wine run out. You know, you think of this bride, you know, here you think about, you know, she starts the wedding and he starts with this incredible failure. You know, one of the things that it's saying is, you know, any of us men, we're husbands, we're going to fail at some point in time. We're not, you know, the fact is we're not going to meet all the needs of our wives. We're not going to be the perfect husbands. And, and wives, none of, none of you guys are perfect either. And sometimes we look at that and we say, boy, if I get married, if I do this, it's going to meet all my needs. And we, you know, we trust in relationships and that's going to be, and we, we make a person or a relationship or our children, we make them our God. We think that they're going to meet all our needs. And the fact of the matter is we're all going to fail. The wine's going to run out. And no matter what we put our trust in, no matter what we think that will satisfy our needs, it's going to run out. It's what Hebrews 11 talks about, you know, that even in, in Hebrews 11, it talks about Moses and he refused to be called, the, you know, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater, of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. What he saw is he said, boy, there's pleasure here. There's, there's joy here. And sin offers pleasure for a season. It does. But it always runs out. It always leaves us dry. It always leaves us, it always leaves us longing for more. It never satisfies. But Jesus Christ is the provider who never fails. He's the groom that provides that wine that, that never runs out. He's the one that is able to take water and, and to make it the wine that we need. That in him and him alone, if we trust, will we find one that will never fail us. So three quick questions to close. Do you have confidence in God's unlimited power and his unlimited love to bring you every, your every need to him? You know, you look at this and you, it's that reminder that he wants us to come with every need. He wants us to come and, and, and there's nothing that's beneath him. There's, he wants to hear every need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he loves you that much, that he's that powerful? Second of all, have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ and his blood for the forgiveness and purification of your sins? Again, religion is all these things you have to do and Jesus Christ is saying, no, just as this miracle, I'm telling you that this is what I came, the problem I came to solve. You thought you had a problem with wine at a wedding, and that's a big problem, but I came to solve a bigger issue. That we're separated from God and we're doing all the things to fix ourselves and, and all of those fall short. And ultimately, it's only faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice that will meet that need. And third of all, what in life do you look to as your ultimate source of joy and meaning? You see, I think that's really even at the core of this more than anything else. You look at it and it's saying, Jesus Christ illustrated something about the meaning of his ministry, of what he came to do, who he was, by creating 150 gallons of incredibly great wine at a party. That he's saying that I will be the source. I will be the source of meaning and joy. I will be the source that will never run out, that will never disappoint. And so we have to look, okay, what am I trusting in? And if we're here and we're trusting and we're broken because we trusted in so many other things and God's a part of that, you see, the fact is, is, yeah, we're broken because everything else, sooner or later, one way or another, is going to disappoint. It's only a relationship in Jesus Christ. It won't make everything great. It won't make everything, you know, go smoothly. It's, it's life's still hard. You see, but when he's at the center of our life, what happens is that, that our life has a source of joy and fulfillment and peace that transcends human understanding. 
Do you have that relationship with him? If you don't, he invites you to do so today. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.